Welcome to the Cabin Culture Podcast, where we spend a little more time diving deeper into all the fun parts of cabin culture. We like to think of this as both the material and imagined expressions of how cabin lovers, dwellers, builders, and designers wish to live a more simple and authentic life. On this episode, I'm talking with Sarah, half of the duo running the incredible Echo Lake Resort, right outside Lumbee, British Columbia. The resort has existed for 80 years, and Sarah and John bought the business back in 2022. What I find fascinating about this conversation is that learning about the systems and strategies of what is essentially a large-scale short-term rental business, there's actually a lot to be learned that can help owners run their own business, even if you only have one property. So today we're diving into all the sexy details of running an Airbnb business in the context of a gorgeous fishing resort on the west coast of Canada. Let's do it. Well, Sarah, it's great to finally meet you. Yes, this is a thrill for me. I'm such a fangirl. And then on top of it, I just think that we are definitely in harmonics. Like we're we're going together on this journey of cabin culture. So I'm here for it. Yeah. And it's so funny because I feel like I have all these conversations every week. And then when people send me letters connecting to things that I talked about in a one-on-one conversation, it's always funny to be reminded like, oh yes, there are other people listening to this and like thinking about these things as they listen too. So, but I think what I'm most excited about, we've messaged on on um, Instagram for a while, but it's hard. I'll be totally honest with you. We get a lot of messages on Instagram and I, you know, the first time we'll like go to their page to get a feel for their space, but it's easy to forget that. And the other day when you sent me that video <laughs> that someone has just made, I don't know if you're going to share it on socials or where people stay tuned, but you sent me that video and from, okay. And partially I'm biased because I'm in video production, but from the first like five seconds and the epic music they picked and the drone shots <laughs> of your incredible Canadian location, I was just like, holy shit, Sarah, I did not clearly have any idea what you were working with out there. Can you tell the people about your spot? Uh, Well, you know, it is. It's an incredible location and we're super fortunate. Um, It is a little rustic fishing resort in the woods outside of any city uh, within a provincial park, so a state level park. And it's like a dot on the map. But it's been running continuously for 80 years. We're the 11th set of owners. And mm-hmm. since about 56, when they created the park, it's been operating on a park use permit, which means that when we bought the business, we bought the structures in the business, but we didn't buy the land. And so it does kind of change the model from we want a future retire here. Maybe we could just shut the campground down and live and run around on the seven acres No, not so much. So it's sort of meant to be in perpetuity. So we look at ourselves like stewards of the land and the lake and the campground. And we're just here to be park rangers and sort of make it great and then hand it, hand the keys over to the next set of owners when and if we sell in the future. So yeah, it's a sweet little place. And uh, we have seven it doesn't look little though. When you said seven acres, I'm surprised because from the video, it just looked like endless amounts of land. Oh, good. Um, the lake itself is about 500 meters wide and about f- just under five kilometers in a sort of median down the middle. Um, okay. We have a mountain on one side, so it's non-traversable around. You can't circumnavigate the whole lake. Uh, the road that runs by is a forest service road. So it is a hard packed, well-maintained gravel road. 
and you're on about 12 kilometers of gravel or I guess that's six miles or so. Um, and so the little bump that we have is seven and a half acres and it's sort of like a wedding cake. That's how I describe it. We have tiers. Mm. So we have a top tier where you drive down our driveway and arrive and you check in at the store. And then the next tier is what I call cabin row where all the little waterfront cabins are on the shoreline edge, which is all natural. So we really can't improve it and make it a, some kind of manicured beach. So you got to kind of watch out, trip over the roots and hopefully not wipe out on the way down to the shoreline. And then uh, we have what we call the third tier, the lower campground, which is all dry camping. So there's no sewer or power hookups down there. So, and we also can't have uh, really large RVs because in Canada, people are on the, the move towards like there's sort of cultures of camping and there's people who want very large, extravagant 40 foot, 50 foot trailers and motorhomes. And then there's people who are mm -hmm. pulling it back into the off grid idea, the sort of tiny home on wheels. And so we get them all. Uh, the people that are over 30 foot, though, we're just basically like go somewhere else. Unfortunately, we don't have the ability to host you. So we have both cabiners and we have campers. And then we run a boat launch, which is the only level flat boat launch for a little trailer on the lake. And we keep it to under 10 horsepower and we minimize the length of the boat as well. What we want to see is fishing boats and people out just, you know, meandering and then people uh, can swim because it's a swimming lake. That's what drew me to it. And uh, so it's a very beautiful spot and it's all about like you've talked in the past about what is it that draws people out there and it's the connection to nature it's also mm -hmm. it is the space whether you bring it or you rent it from us um it's mm -hmm. the space that you are interacting with so the the contextual nature of that and then we have these little old structures that we dearly love and have to maintain constantly <laughs> <laughs> That, I mean, it just feels like there's so many challenges. We haven't talked to anyone. Steve, I think, um, his Instagram handle is The Land, and he's out on the other side of Canada, has like 500 acres of Canadian wilderness, but only has three structures on it. So so similar in that he called himself a steward and a ranger of the land as well, which I loved that similarity and how you both talked about it, but nowhere near the capacity in terms of how many humans you're hosting at any given time. So this is really interesting to dig into <laughs> so many pieces of this. Can you start, though, by telling me, how did you first find this place? Were you a guest there and you found it? Or did you were you like just thinking about getting in? Yeah. Like, how did this even come about? It feels like such a huge jump from your real life, which I also wouldn't hate if you mentioned <laughs> what you used to do. But it feels like such a huge jump from there. It, it really was. I think I even even where I come from in my background and wanting to be like 100% into this, I had never turned left off the highway to go to Lumbee. And mm. I had never been to this part of the Okanagan. So British Columbia is huge. And a lot of it is wild. And we have beautiful different um, ecosystems. And I have grown up in the lower mainland, which is what we call the Vancouver area, which is centered on the coast. And pretty much everything else, and most of the population of British Columbia is right on the coastline there. Um, but everything else is a several hour drive. So once you get into what we call the interior uh, subset section is like the Okanagan area. And uh, it's a beautiful area. There's lots of vineyards. It resembles, I think, 
uh, Napa quite a bit because there's lakes and vineyards. And then you carry on a little bit further north. So about six hours drive north from uh, Vancouver. And you're getting into the North Okanagan and it's more forested. So if you look at our website, it's that's exactly the terrain. We're nestled at Echo up against the Monashee mountain range. And so there's, um, but it's still low enough in elevation around 850 meters that we have cedar trees. So we have cedars and pines and Douglas firs, as well as like, so a lot of biodiversity. Um, yeah, but I can almost smell it when you describe it. Yes, and it does. It has a beautiful scent when the rain comes. And so, uh, but it's still sort of on the verge of um, sort of, it's the interior dryness. It's very different than the coast. So, yep, I had never been into this area and I've at first resisted purchasing the resort because it was on a park use permit and we wouldn't be buying the land. So it felt like a huge risk to invest in a business where you don't actually have that asset. And um, the yeah. actual the actual process of buying a fishing resort or buying a campground, that is something that we did have to traverse. Uh, it took a few months. Um, so it was kind of key to find the right kind of purchase. And then it was very key to find the right lender who would work with that because no major financial mm -hmm. institutions would lend on a business like this. So, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to get there. I have questions about your business model for sure. But before we get there, you said you weren't sold on it. So was it John? It was John. Who was sold on it? How did it, did he find it and then bring it up to you? What was your first reaction? Because it feels like if this was not what you were thinking, this is a big jump. Well, it had been my fantasy. So during COVID, this is maybe the consistency of the theme of, you know, getting out there yeah. and doing this uh, lifestyle. But Yes, uh, we were both doing the same job and really burning out. And um, we were working from home, which I truly enjoyed. I had never had that experience before and I could have done it forever, but we were approaching the return to the office deadline. And I was, no, I wasn't going back. So um, really uh, I was desperate <laughs> and desperate uh, breeds innovation or, you know, um, creativity. So I love to look at the MLS, the, the listings, the real estate listings. So mm -hmm. I was looking online Me too. And, uh, and probably everybody else listening yeah, to this. Yeah. So we have a home at another lake in the caribou region of the interior further north. And so that is, that is, uh, our property that we're looking at in the future Airbnb, but we love the caribou. And so when I saw a listing, for what I would call leftovers. It was a piece of a little old resort and it was about 400 meters behind our house. We could have just ATV to work. And that was very appealing. And yeah, this sounds like the post COVID dream. Yes. So I had this whole fantasy of how we could live at my favorite place in the world and work and sustain ourselves. And so I had about a two hour whole process and I'm a nerd. We've talked about this. And so I brought it, like I presented this to John as the big idea. And he's like, where are we going to find the money? And that was sort of what stopped it. I didn't know. I didn't know where we could find the yeah. money. And it didn't have a current business on it. It just basically had been left to sort of falter into nothingness. And that also yeah. presents the challenge for how to get financing clearly. So yeah, so it sort of went on the shelf. And this was August 2021. But like many good ideas, it comes back around. And so yeah. in September, we had continued to look at the listings. He was intrigued. We had done the exercise of pros and cons, and we had been like, well, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are we good at? Mm -hmm. Could we do this business? Because you can't divorce the people from 
the operations you have to run. Right. And so yep. we were like, no, we love the outdoors. We have a whole lifestyle of being active and we know how to work extremely hard. That is a non-negotiable. Okay. This might be a good place where you tell people what you used to do. <laughs> Our last occupations was where we met John and I, and we were both investigators and in Canada, and I think many states in the U.S., there's a civilian oversight of police. And, you know, if we think back to reasons uh, in, you know, recent history, there's um, very good and necessary, um, you know, background and incidents between police where they use too much force and they injure members of the public. And those mem people in the public tend to be overrepresented in like, you know, lower income or um, racial groups that, you know, basically they interact with police and they get disproportionately injured or killed. So we were oversight investigators for the province. And for five years, we we're working on small teams um, deployed around the province. Our responsibility was the entire province. And um, every time there was a serious incident where someone was injured or killed, a team would deploy and would, you know, seek the evidence to look into whether or not police had acted within their legal authority. So these investigations are serious. They involve a lot of uh, civilian uh, witness interviewing. They can involve forensics and perishable evidence collection. Um, and there's a sort of a whiplash of the incident happens between the police and the public, and then we're deployed. So there's an on-call structure to the job where a week every three weeks, because we only had three teams, we were on call. And when John and I began dating each other, pretty quickly we went to management and they separated us off the same team to avoid any conflict of interest. And so then as our relationship... But then that leads, yeah, to like half travel for each of you. Yeah. And it meant that two out of every three weeks, we were unavailable to our life, unavailable to our families, each other. And it became very difficult to manage. And when you come back from that deployment week, you've picked up files for sure. And sometimes because we were good investigators, we were the head of those files, whether we were coordinating the file or leading the investigation as the team leader, or sorry, the, um, the, within the command triangle, they have different roles, but the primary investigator. So my life is, my previous life is fading away. Uh, so we would then have a file load, an ongoing investigative load of 10 or 12 files and all the responsibility to bring those Eventually, the information will go to the chief civilian director for discussion about whether or not charges should be uh, sought, and then it would go to a prosecutor, and then it would go through disclosure, and then possibly a trial. So these are very long, like over a year type um, investigations, and we're handling multiple ones. And then COVID hits. We're all basically trying to work within, like, how do we deploy? How do we manage to get evidence? And it just becomes that much harder. And yeah. we just suffered overwork and it wasn't going to improve because people started leaving. It's just, you, you vote with your feet when it becomes yep. too hard. So yeah. we did the same. We, we cultivated this idea, this plan. And in September, 2021, when John saw the listing for echo and said, this is beautiful. And I said, it is, but we do not have the land opportunity here. Uh, he mm -hmm. was able to go up and see the place and it was love at first sight for him. And so I had to exist. I couldn't go cause I was on call. 
And so I didn't see Mm -hmm. my new home until the following February. And we had already made the deal. And I was living on some really bad pictures because the listing itself didn't have a lot of um, contact Mm -hmm. for what I was going to be getting myself into. Um, So, and there was an old website that was fairly poorly laid out. And so, yeah, in that, not anymore. No, I know because, you know, all good things come with time, but they also come with this like sense of, I feel very much um, when you need something, you put it to the universe. I call it God and, and you will be provided with some, some help or answers. And I feel like going there and working through the first season and taking about 600 pictures on my phone um, was the answer to making a beautiful website that represents what you're actually going to experience. And the little point you made about our video, our draft video comes to us again through one of these connections because we were solicited uh, by a little production company out of Kelowna. And they said, we'd love to come and stay. And in exchange, we'll do you a video. And we were hooked. We were intrigued. So I tell you what, I don't know how much your stays cost, but I do know how much a video of that quality costs. And I'm guessing you got a really good deal. I know we did. And we have the opportunity to engage with creators and people who, like yourself, you you understand video production. I theoretically understand video production, but I have a gimbal that I don't know how to use yet. I have not had time to teach myself. And I can help you with that. I know. And so these are the things, um, you know, you need a team. So part of buying any kind of one of these businesses um, is you need a team. And, you know, I would like to mention my bestie accountant, because part of the reason why we have the you know, the gumption to do this is because we have great support. And Deborah is, she's my former rowing coach and she's a very supportive coach individual, like as a person and she's an accountant. So it's very fortunate for us um, that she was able to spend the time with us to create cash flows. And these are the, the things you need to convince the lender to be part of your team to get the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is like maybe my first big question for you, depending how much you're willing to dive into this. I think there's a lot of dreamers. And I remember my first build and how prior to that first reno, I never would have had the guts to take on a project because I didn't necessarily have the skills. I'd never, you know, renovated anything. I'd never, at that point, I'd never hosted on Airbnb. So when you started talking about this plan. My assumption is always that people have like giant cash reserves. And so that's why they can afford to like jump off the cliff and and do it. And they can just afford to like lose all that money if it doesn't go well. Can you talk us through that jump? Like how did you guys talk through how we finance this, how we make this work? Did you give yourself three years grace period in order to be profitable? Like how did you all talk through that financial piece before you made the jump? Well, a a number of things like I'm a good researcher and I knew that there was, you know, key pieces that you have to kind of start to understand. And when you look at the listings on MLS and you see places for sale and a lot of fishing resorts, campgrounds, they will list on the residential side. Uh, They make it look like anyways, um, a residential mortgage, which it's not. 
So I had familiarity with mortgaging and I was like, okay, so I bring some of the money to the party and the rest of the money comes from a lender and I get this thing called a mortgage. And as long as I can afford to make that all go around, i.e. the customers will come or keep coming, then we'll be in the game, right? Um, So I had some savings, which is what we've been living off of. So, you know, taking us out of the equation does greatly assist with the cash flow and making the whole thing work because we have a hefty yep. mortgage and we got that mortgage through Community Futures, which in, in Canada is local and invested in um, making small businesses run. So there was a very serious vetting process for us to be financed through Community Futures um, involving was it a mortgage or a business loan? It is a business mortgage, a commercial mortgage. Okay. So the rules okay. are different. And then within community futures, they have some ability to do things differently because of how they're set up. So they are a uh, not-for-profit branch of Business Development Canada, which is a federal entity. So a different lending structure than your t- typical FI. Um, and that is that was key for us. But we are their biggest lend ever. And they had to syndicate wow. through multiple branches of themselves in order to come up with the balance. And a lot of it has to do with the strength of our application, which included a glossy business plan. Uh, it included all the cash flows. Thank you, Deborah. And it included a lot of personal data from us. We had to give it all. Yeah. So you have to be yeah. of good character. You cannot have because they're going to dig into everything. They knew it all. It they was- have to. I mean, I get it. Yeah. They're lending lots of money. Yeah, did and we, it's too big to fail the- for them, <laughs> not just us. Right. That's right. Especially if it's their biggest loan ever. Did the previous owner, the one selling it, open up their books to you? Because the mortgage tells you one half that equation, which is what you're going to have to pay every month. But the other half of projected income, you hear a lot of folks talk about this before buying is a little bit of an unknown. It's more helpful if you're buying a business because they theoretically have the bookkeeping from however many years and can tell you generally what to expect. Did they share that with you or did you have to do it all on your own? No, that was helpfully part of it. And by this time in late September that year, we had already looked at a few other places because like I said, we were initially looking in the Caribou region. So other listings were there, not so many great ones and a couple that had sort of older couples that had kind of cycled down into sort of hobby land where if you have a pension, I mean, a lot of people buying these businesses are at pension age, they're late fifties, early sixties, they're going to run it for 10 or 15 years. Um, Or in the older days, 30 years ago, you could be a couple just starting off, but now the land values are too high. The, you know, if you need a mortgage, if you can't bring all of the cash to the party, then you are going to have to show books. So you just, with the realtors, usually you can sign an NDA, you can get their books. Uh, Good listings will have several years worth. And especially through the pandemic, that was pretty important because there was a lot of reasons why um, business uh, revenues could go up or down, but camping was considered a safe thing to do in COVID times. It was one of the few things you could do was go into nature. That's right. Why everybody bought a trailer and everybody yep. you know, flooded into the park. Or bought land and built cabins. Yes. Yes. Because we were all trying to find a way to interestingly manage social distancing while still feeling connected to something. Yeah. So it was like yeah. a real outcome of the pandemic. So we NDA'd and we got several years worth of um, business data And yes, then we had to look at them critically 
to say to the lender how we could go forward and make it better even and how we, yeah. So there was lots of analyzing, which is my gig. That's really my, yeah. my forte. So analyzing and like strategizing. Okay. I see what you were able to do. And then I see what I think we could do with that. What were the big areas of opportunity when you, when you did all that analyzing and you looked into their numbers, you were like, if we did this one or two things, I think we could change this. Well, I really didn't know all of that before before the purchase. But after last year, so our first operating year, I have a little more to go on. Um, it's still always going to be like a little bit, uh, every year is going to be different. But I yeah. was able to look at uh, very much like in-depth the boat rentals. We rent fishing boats. So come and stay at Echo Lake. Come and stay at Echo Lake and rent a fishing boat. Or come for the day and rent the fishing boat. So what I could see is that the fishing boat rentals uh, were about 30%. And we could we could bring that up significantly. So we, as part of the strategy, we renewed the fishing fleet. And this year we have six new boats and motors with electric option as well. And so nicer boats with comfy seats will bring the yeah. people. And then it's about yeah. finding the people. So with a new website a better ability to um, build your SEO and have help the people find you and find that experience. So that is what we're working on. Uh, optimization takes time. So we need it. Mm -hmm. We'll see these benefits of our work next year and the years after. So that's the hardest thing about marketing oh. changes is that one in hiring people, it's hard to measure their past success. I find SEO to be the absolute trickiest. Yes. It's like you're trusting that someone can change these things on the back end of your website that you don't know how to work. So you have literally no way of checking their work. And it's not like they can say this many people came in from this. It's just, it's very hard to measure with all brand marketing, really. So it's hard to know what to invest in. Did you decide on what changes to make based on your own experience with marketing or just which opportunities came along? Or how did you decide what order to prioritize those? Well, happily, we were also by this point connected up with a really good web designer and um, uh, like a uh, software implementing. So our new website is like a uh, it's a really good team effort, but um, Amalia and Matt are really good at their jobs. So Matt understands Google because, <laughs> yeah, Google keeps changing itself. And if you've ever taken out Google ads, it's not simple. Uh, just really like all the videos might tell you um, campaigns. <laughs> campaigns are tricky. And yeah, you don't quite know. So as a very small business, with a very small marketing and advertising budget, i.e. like not much at all. Um, we were very hesitant to just keep splashing money on Google ads. But I do feel like the, taking advantage of what other people are even more scared than you to do is a good strategy because yeah. a lot of the fishing resorts, a lot of these businesses are still managed by a telephone call and they're not doing this. So to move up the rankings on the website, you need, you know, you need to have a website that can do the heavy lifting and you want to own your content and you want to manage, you know, all of those things. But I personally don't have time. John doesn't have time. So having 
our web designers do it for us um, was a very, it was hard to give the control over, but we literally didn't know enough to do it ourselves. So it was a very good decision. Yeah. And I still struggle with the social media aspect of it because I want to, I want to control the narrative and I need to remember, I don't need to control. I just need to manage. (laughs) So give it to Amalia. (laughs) Okay. I want to revisit something you just said, because I, I feel like you went right by it understandably. And I feel like it's so important, which is like, I, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but you were scared to do this, but so were other people. And so by doing a thing that you were scared to do, it is still an opportunity for you to stand out. Because you you had mentioned before that a lot of the owners of places like this are retired, right? And are older. So they're going to be even more scared of something like Google Ads or Instagram or social media, which then opens up an opportunity. I feel like for other folks renting their cabins, there is very little actual marketing going on. Instagram and social media is the first foray into like real marketing, I feel like, for a lot of rentals. We have all relied on Airbnb and VRBO to just do it for us. It's been that easy. Yeah. At least in the last wave, right? Of like five to seven years, the growth of cabins. So I think that's actually really good advice. Figure out like what you're scared to do. But if other people aren't doing it either, that could be a huge opportunity for you. Yeah, I think I, well, because I was um, presenting information to a lender and um, when I did our business plan, things that came from my previous lives uh, kind of came forward into it. So I did a SWOT, a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And I also did uh, a more sort of um, com- like a more in-depth one called PESTLE, which is like political, economic, social. Um, it, it sort of delves into some more areas. And these are the the ways that you can look at, you know, what are your internal strengths and weaknesses? What are the external things that might come along? Because uh, like, understandably, the lender is concerned about what happens if COVID shows up again, or we have another pandemic. And what is that? What is that going to do to your business model? And uh, are you going to withstand those threats? Those, you know, um, it's actually going to spike my revenue exponentially, and we're going to thrive. COVID was like the best thing to ever happen to, to my <laughs> rental business. Now it's going back to normal. But I feel like that is the one example that is actually no longer scary for your business or others. Cause we're like, actually, I mean, I don't want another COVID, but that was really helpful. <laughs> yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting being in this space because it does, it has been it strengthened and it has gotten the word out. People have searched, they've been looking and that's necessary with the way the internet works in order to find what you want. And we do take yeah. out print ads. We still advertise in some classic, like camping in RV magazines, Um, we, so we're, we're keeping our, uh, advertising diverse and we are a member of a couple of associations and chambers of commerce. And, and so there's a bit of exposure through that and support as well. And, uh, so I would, I would say don't rely on, and our strategy is not the all eggs in one basket, which is, I think what kind of makes me nervous about Airbnb. Um, and it's, you know, it's for me, it's, uh, there are other resorts that do their cabin listings on Airbnb or VRBO in addition to direct bookings as a, as a way to draw in a a wider group of people uh, or a further distance people, because in cities people are more likely to search with an app or a platform. And yeah, you know, if you're, if you're, it's not like a fishing resort, camping, 
you know, what are the hashtags? So there's a couple of cool tools out there that aggregate searches and help you refine your keywords. And that will help you delve into, I guess, like, you know, dispassionately, we'll call it the sales funnel. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's um how to kind of and I, I'm sort of I'm all self-taught here. So this is not my background. I have a criminology degree, not a marketing, you know, program. But uh, although already it sounds like you've done a lot more than most of the folks who listen to this, myself included, in terms of marketing outside of social media and Airbnb. So this is super helpful to hear. Well, and you know, the the fact is I truly believe in spreadsheets. So if you have a comparison, I just even like write it on paper. So you look at your, your, this business and in your direct area, who's your competition? That's kind of simple, right? Um, and then yeah. outside of your direct area, who's doing it wonderfully? Who do you follow? Um, who do you like seeing posts from? But then when you kind of see that, you realize that if they have great Instagram, they probably have a website. They probably have a way to handle their bookings. And how are they handling that? Is everybody going to one booking, uh, you know, company or are they going to, you know, uh, keeping it where you just email them and they put it in their book, so to speak. So, yeah, you know, once I figured out, you know, that, that, that was necessary for pricing structures as well. Like how do we stay competitive? How do we, um, not overprice ourselves out of our market for what we're offering and how do we mm -hmm. value ourselves? Because, yeah. you know, it's like we we probably are still a little bit undervaluing what we have at Echo Lake Resort. So. so what are some of the, I'm curious about your spreadsheets because I also love spreadsheets and insist on doing my own financial bookkeeping once a month slash every night. If you ask Sean, he thinks I'm always on my spreadsheet. What are some of the, like for someone who also loves spreadsheets, but does not currently use it for their rentals. Do you have one massive spreadsheet with different tabs, one where you're like studying marketing, one where you're studying like monthly cash flow, one where you're projecting like a year long runway? How do you, what are the, how do you organize that? Yeah. Like the mechanics of the business, uh, happily a little bit. Yeah. I have a bookkeeper. So I know you've, I, you've talked in the past about, um, worrying about calculating tax correctly. And we have two taxes. So we are always calculating tax on things and we're getting better at that. Um, I thought I could take over the bookkeeping last year. That became apparent that I could not, uh, you know, well, I can't imagine doing it for a business that large. Yeah. Well, it's the intensity of July and August that it's like this roller coaster and that is the peak. So the midpoint of our season is right around July 21st. It is the most intense. We could have upwards of 250 people on the resort staying. And then um, that would include like daily boat launches and rentals and the cabins and campground. And so the whole season is about a 4,500 person visit. Uh, like That's about our numbers. And so right in the middle of July and August, boom, like it's just you hang on and you just try to deliver some form of customer service, guest services. Yeah. And, you know, I can't yeah. be worrying about journal entries and reconciling um, tax amounts. And so we have our bookkeeper and Deborah does our corporate taxes uh, once a year. Okay. So uh, that's really important, but I do all the journal entries. So I'm the one who's letting the bookkeeper know what that money went to, what those expenses were for. And so yeah. then I don't ask at this point for mid-season reports on, you know, where we're at, but I can in my ability with my booking system, the online booking system married up to the new website has changed the business. So 
no longer am I using an old spreadsheet, which was siloed and not connected to our website. And no longer am I dealing with, or John, uh, you know, 45 phone calls a day. Can I please have this? Um, or even yeah. email. So it takes the noise and it separates it and it helps the customer too, because they can see what they're trying to get is available or not, and they can make secure mm-hmm. payments. And then the tax amounts, I just send the reports I export them from the booking system monthly to the bookkeeper along with all of the bank statements and the credit card line of credits, that kind of stuff. And then I keep a spreadsheet of all of our purchase costs and I go by months on that. So there's obviously the repeat things that happen every month and then there's the other expenses. And so I don't get a full picture all the time. I'm not that diligent, but I have also come through a couple of grant and contribution applications where we receive money from the government to do different projects. And I had to create the whole parameter around which we would get that. So I had to know the numbers. So I, that's when it's really helpful. Yeah. A lot of people will ignore it, but then the minute you want to apply for the next mortgage or a grant or something like that, first thing they're going to ask for is like at the minimum a PL, which if you don't have, if you don't do your own bookkeeping, that's not always easy to just pr- like produce, but most are going to go deeper into like, okay, but let's understand this PL and like where you're spending money, what you're making, things like that. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's going to have the next project, whether you don't build a second cabin, but you want to add a hot tub or you need to put a deck in, you need to figure out, can that pay for itself within a reasonable amount of time? What are you willing to carry? Where's the money going to come from? And smart business and profitable businesses are able to support their own, you know, uh, expansion. So we have the next idea for Echo Lake Resort. We know that the business could use more revenue. (laughs) Uh, You know, like let's support ourselves with this business revenue. So in order to do that, our plan is to add some more small cabins and, I, I'm particular about the verbiage on this. I'm like, they are camping cabins, cabins without as much, you know, infrastructure as our waterfront cabins. And even those are super rustic. So these will be like, you know, places to sleep with kitchenettes, little tiny, tiny kitchens, and they not have running water. So, you know, we have a couple of, uh, challenges with our land usage. And these are going to be structures on the land, not founded into it. And so they're mini cabins, but these mini cabins are still in demand. And we have a pair right now that have done really great things in the last year for us. So when we go to present that to our lender and say, can we have some more money? Uh, We will have to have all the projections, like how's it going to do? How's it going to pay for itself? And so I do. I, I hover on this stuff and look at what our opportunities are. But in, in regards to that, I also have to find the market. I have to really pin down the experience that people will pay for. And that's yeah. sort of the heart of it, right? And, you know, we want to offer that experience. So that's the work to be done. Yeah. Can I ask one more question on this on this front before we pivot? Um how do you think about your pricing? Do you use price? Cause I feel like that's the hardest thing for anyone and you are dealing with it on like, how do we price camping versus waterfront cabins versus this, like the dry camping. 
you're pricing a whole bunch of different things, all of which share the same location and beautiful like amenities that you offer, but the actual where they stay is different. So how do you think about that? And how are you thinking about that in terms of projections for the newest cabins? Yeah, it's about value. So, and it's about the value that the customers perceive is in the experience. And it is about comparative value. So I want to always say that you need to know everybody else's business as best you can. And a lot of our customers cabin at different places during the season. They get the opportunity because the Okanagan's full of places to go. So we know we're not the only place that our customers are going to ever get to. Uh, How can we become their favorite? Well, I think we have become the favorite of some people, but we might not be the favorite of everyone. So I try not to put all of the pressure on us to be the only or the best, but there's about 20 different places that I've compared us to in order to sort of slot us in. And we arrived with a pricing model already in place, but it needs to adjust upwards. It is still not able to carry the full load of the expenses to have enough labor to make the experience really great. Like we need employees and previous ownerships were running on. They were the pair of owners or the family that owned it was doing all the work. And so we just know that in order to really give good customer service, it can't just be John and I changing the beds and cleaning the wash house and running the boats. We need people to do, we need staff to do that. So that you're going to be paying. So then you have to increase the prices to do that. Yes. But then it's also tricky in your situation because you have so many repeat guests. I think you mentioned in your email that you have one who has been coming for like 70 years and is 86 now. So has been coming since he was a teenager. So you are facing a very unique challenge in changing those prices from people who are used to paying. I'm sure they've seen increases over that time just due to inflation. But yeah, but I can imagine that is a, a challenge with pricing. I sweat increasing the prices by $10 a night. And so it is not possible. I don't think it's good business. I don't think it's ethical. It happens all the time when there's a turnover. It is what people, customers are the most afraid of is that the new owners will come in and rocket the prices up and that they won't be able to afford to come to their favorite place. And so you do it really incrementally. You do it slowly. When you buy an existing business where there is a lot of feelings involved with your customers. And there is this sort of, we have what we call legacy families. They have been coming mm-hmm. for since the sixties. They can tell you everything about the place, things I had no idea about. So I've been learning all the history of Echo through my customers and the returning uh, descendants and former workers and the people who come out and show their I love that. with me. Yeah. So I feel really privileged to be able to gather the history um, and to be sort of an observer within because I don't feel very much like an owner most of the time. I just feel like like a you know custodian, <laughs> a caretaker. Yeah, especially these first couple of years. I'm sure you will adjust into that role where you then know more or as much as a lot of your guests. You also have the unique... Uh, privilege of getting to like chat and interact with all your guests. Like you are there, you live on site where they all are. Most of us, even if we live next door to our cabin or in the same town as our cabin, 
it's like a quick greeting and then a enjoy, but you get to interact with them regularly. I can imagine that also brings with it a lot more enjoyment. Yeah. And I think it was maybe, well, you know, I hadn't been in a customer centric occupation for a long time. When I was in university, I worked five years for Eddie Bauer. That was pretty like formative for me because I absolutely love that outdoorsing company. Um, yeah. But I hadn't been in customer service for a long time. And uh, being in law enforcement, mostly for about 20 years, meant that, you know, you sort of see a segment of the population that tends to be problematic. But this has restored a lot of my faith in people are good. And most people... Yeah are well-meaning, yes, they're going to break your stuff and you're going to have to fix a lot of that. But most of the time you can sort out the conflicts, you can weather those challenges. But I have to say it's not without its like, you know, challenge. I have to manage my own personal biases a lot. I tend to react. I tend to go in a direction where I've been proven wrong multiple times. And I sometimes feel like a huge customer service failure. And thank God I have John. He is way better at dealing with people, especially our customer base than I think I am. And, you know, sometimes I'm going to come through and be successful and other times I'm going to fail and then vice versa for him. So hopefully it evens out and we don't lose too many people because Sarah was cranky that day or. Yeah. Oh my God. I can relate to you so much though. Is like when you run your own business, it exposes the most vulnerable parts of you, especially you are running your business and managing a team of employees, which I run a business full-time as well, but I only have one employee and some freelancers, but still even that, even managing cleaners at the three different cabins is like a whole thing. Do you have any advice for those of us who manage arguably much smaller teams than you, but you, that's also half of your work is not just hospitality, but also managing people. Yeah. Which is not something I have a lot of experience in. John certainly is a long time people manager. And in all of my occupations, I ended up in niche work where I was uh, like, I was a sort of, yeah, a niche worker where I just had the specific skill set the other people wanted. So we interacted as peers. So yeah, customer service and people management, they are John's forte. I learned a lot from him. But I would say that Honesty and integrity have to be the two things that you lead with and you expect in return from your employees or the people that are on your team, whether that's your you know, accountant or your lender or your insurance provider. So you need to be direct and you need to be um, professional. And I think what's interesting is that I'm in a campground wearing a plaid shirt all the time and it doesn't appear professional, but I need to be a professional in order to make all of that happen so that when you experience yeah. the resort, um, you you just come and I'm literally a background player. It's really not about Sarah and John. It's about the cute store at Echo where you can buy souvenirs yeah. and it's about fishing on the lake. And, you know, so it's about the guest experience. Um, but when the rubber meets the road and there's a problem, all of those professional skills come back in. So I would say like, if you are a person who knows you can give a great conversation to someone, a great guest experience to someone renting, um, you know how to 
you know, put a treat on the counter and you know where to get good sheets for your beds. You know, you've got all of the logistics of the place handled and you know you can manage um, another person. And, but you just need to be really honest and you need to care about them. And you mm-hmm. need to also then stay strategically focused on what the outcome is supposed to be like because everyone comes to work and has a good day or bad day. And that can be very impactful when you have a very small team. Um, So yeah, Yeah. if your cleaner can't do it for you and your feedback is such, then you need to switch your cleaner out. And it's hard to have those challenging conversations. Um, It's so hard. (laughs) It is. I just lost a cleaner this last week um, at our cabin in Boone. And it was, she's been with us for three years and it was the right move. And I was ready to make it. And I had found a backup cleaner who I loved and was really trying to handle the transition with Grace. And she just didn't like that I found a backup cleaner and left, which made it a lot easier. But it just highlighted for me that the honesty piece, I wasn't completely honest with her. Because the honest answer was, you're just not cutting it anymore. And I need more from someone who's managing our property. We don't live nearby and, and we need better eyes on the property. But I was afraid to say that. And so I was just like, oh, we need another backup cleaner just to make sure. And, you know, and dancing around it was not the right answer. It's so hard. So the honesty is a bit easier. The integrity piece is hard for me because I think integrity in my mind is like aligning your actions with your beliefs. But in order to do that, you have to deeply understand your beliefs and what's most important to you and what are like the core values of your business that above all else, we must be these things and then making sure your actions align with that. And I feel like sometimes my beliefs, like I'm still trying to kind of like grappling with that in hospitality of like how often is the customer right? Where do I draw boundaries for myself? Where do, you know, I'm thinking about cancellation and and if there's damage, when is it a cost of business? When do you ask them for money? Those parts are all really hard for me to consistently Mm -hmm. operate with integrity because it is like, well, I don't know, should I be asking for money for this or not? Like, it's hard to like really fine tune your beliefs. Well, you have a big team. Have you all identified when you took over? Did you come up with your own core values or how does your team communicate about that? Well, yes and no, but I think I think John and I had by virtue of being hired in the civilian oversight world, we had gone through extensive like personal and professional integrity building like exercises, workshops, evolution. Like we could have, we could, we could put it down on paper for you. Um, we had, we both have had extensive training in um, bias management and reduction in order to get, you know, fair and quality um, evidential interviews. Like it's, it's just written yeah. right into case law through the courts. Um, so, yeah. and we're extremely direct people. John is a extremely compassionate person and he has a background of being a firefighter and a paramedic and a peace officer in his previous jobs. And I would say that I am more analytical and clinical and, but at the same time, what it leads to is being very forthright. So if people don't like it, they won't really want to work for us. And yeah. The interesting juxtaposition is that we're seasonally employing people. They're, we're in a remote location. Uh, we're 45 minutes away from the nearest sort of city. Um, so someone who's going to work for us is going to need to be a fairly independent, um, 
you know, capable individual who can handle a dirt road, who I actually might even want to stay on site in one of our trailers, um, who is going to report back, who's also going to understand, like, there's conversations for us as the team um, that we don't necessarily want to have in public with the customers overhearing us. Yeah. Um, Another another added benefit, but also practicality for us at Echo Lake is that we have 10 families that seasonally camp with us. And so they buy in for this for the whole season. Yeah, they bring their trailers May 1st. They take their trailers October 10th, which is our, well, it's Canadian Thanksgiving. That's the end of our season. Um, and so yeah. they come and they camp and they'll be there every weekend for three weekends or four weeks in a row or however they please. But they are really, um, it's a stable group of people who are like long time Echo Lakers and they are around to see, to see us, you know, in our natural environment. So they'll know. They get a glimpse that not everyone gets. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so that's actually kind of nice because it gives us sort of a sense of continuity and they share some of our challenges. They help us solve problems. They are good people. And we therefore also have our staff gets comfortable with them and knows that they're around and can talk with them and, you know, share a beverage at the end of the work day if they choose to, or go fishing. Yeah. So yeah, there's like a culture that we're trying to have, but also the last wrinkle for our staff is that a lot of them are young people. We're getting a lot of students. We actually apply for and receive a Canada summer student grant. So we're within a program that helps us get somebody who is between, I think the age is 15 to 30. So we've had, we had working for us last season, uh, 14, 16, 18, 19, and 29 year olds, as well as our lead housekeeper, who's, you know, an adult. (laughs) This makes sense to me though, after seeing your property, like if I were in my early twenties, like just graduated college, that sounds like a dream job to live on site and be part of hospitality and outdoors and like seeing a small business operating. I don't know. It sounds like a dream. Me too. I never went to a lot of summer camp as a kid. My family grew up with a cabin. So we went to the cabin and it was not really bring all your friends. It was literally a small rustic cabin still is. And so it was the place we went, but we interacted just with family and, you know, so I didn't have this experience of going to a campground. I never camped where we went to different places. Um, my first experience with that was with my first husband and we bought a little tent trailer and we went around a bit and we camped with his family. We were reliving his childhood and it was a lot of fun for me, but I'm, I'm a cabiner. I'm a, I'm a person who sets it down and wants that same place every year. And John did a little more traveling with his family and a little more back and forthing across the province to go to a cabin. So he's also got cabin culture in his background, but the camping thing for us is like, it's a, it's a new world, which is kind of fun. It's a new window into insight into how people do summer and what they expect and hope for. And a lot of it's the same. If we didn't have this beautiful lake that you can swim in and paddleboard on and just it's serene and it's, it is a little bit, I think it is actually special. I'm trying not to be that person that's like sort of um, in my own experience so much. I can't see other experiences, 
But I would say the advice for other people who are starting off their own cabin rental business is to continue to build your um, your network. That's what we're doing. And mm -hmm. uh, then you can, you know, but thank you for your feedback on the video because I'm sitting here going, well, it just looks a little same, same as maybe some of the other production videos or maybe some of the other fishing resorts. And I already, after just less than two years, can almost not see my forest for the tree or trees for the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wrote that in your email. You said, I pulled this quote because I, I just, I really wanted to like sit with it and think about it. But you said, our lives as interconnected to our businesses as they are is like living everything everywhere all at once. And cabin culture does a lot for me in focusing on smaller pieces of the mosaic as well. And it's so useful to reverse the lens and think about the customer too. And I wanted to sit with that because I do think for those of us who have cabins that are our homes, like we go there and share them, mm -hmm. it can be there. There are so many pieces to it, wanting to make the perfect place for other people, but also wanting to make a place that you love. And like, how do you think about all of those experiences all the time can be really overwhelming. And I love thinking about it as smaller mosaic pieces and just taking some time with each of those smaller pieces to then, you know, zoom back out and look at the whole thing. Yeah, I don't think any of us have it in us to create, a, you know, an eight by 10 landscape. But most of us can just focus in on one little study and maybe then start to add those pieces together. I've gotten so much value out of your conversations. And, you know, some of it is functional and practical, like Jared Johnson and, and direct bookings. And some of it is like, go team. And we're part of this together. I feel like Cassidy is like a real, like sort of, you know, he's bombastic. He's a cheerleader. He's yeah. like, you know, yeah. this is great. It's going to be fine. We're going to do it this way. And I just was yeah. like, yes. Yeah. So when he was describing how people are and how you deal with that. And it's like, yes, part of initially, I think some of the parts of the business that I had a bit of trepidation about was, oh God, are they going to like me and John? Oh God, am I going to like them? Um, these people come all the time. They want to keep coming. I can't lose my my customer base. Um, yeah. But I wasn't able to curate that. I received all of these people and their pre-bookings and then right. they just showed up and told me how it was going to be. And so we have yeah. had to wrestle some of the, not control, but some of the reins of the business back for, because it had kind of gotten a bit lax. A lot of things were just happening. Um, you could just take ice out of the cooler and sign up on the door. You could just take firewood and say you took a bundle and maybe you took six. Um, you know, so we were kind of like, we had to bring a lot of things back into center and we believe in structure and rules. We, we believe in that as a philosophy that it will make things fair and it will make things known. And we believe in transparency. So, yep. you know, yeah. lead with your heart, but also have your, your lines, create your boundaries so you don't get taken advantage of because if people can kind of push on you, they will, then others will see it and it will continue until you have yeah. no backbone or leg to stand on all the analogies and you will end up broke because at the end of the day, it is a business and you are here to either break even or profit you're trying to live off some of this and there is, there is a way to do this so that you can feel good about it. And not just the customer feels great because I personally just don't believe that they're mm. always right 
or that they should always be in the sort of that they should end up at the end of the day thinking that they have it over you. Sometimes they're not right. Mm. And that's very awkward. We just went through a huge forest fire season here in BC and a lot of people were devastated and it directly two large fires pinned us in. Uh, We weren't directly evacuated or affected, but our business dried up at the the peak season, August 18th to September 15th, things fell apart. And we had to have really hard conversations with people about our cancellation policy. And we had to go through, like we went through an insurance claim that we did not receive uh, coverage for because we weren't under civil authority. So there are some things post pandemic and natural disaster wise and your insurance policy stuff that are, have to be your hard lines and we're getting better at this, but it doesn't mean that it's not personal or painful when you lose. It's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. But you want to exist for the people in the future. And that's for me, cancellation policies are the hardest for me to grapple with. Cause of course, every heartfelt email you get about why they have to cancel, you want to accommodate, but I just don't trust myself to be that figure who gets to make all the decisions about whose cancellation is, is worthy and whose isn't. I just don't like that role. And if you don't have some kind of policy, you can't operate as a business. And if you can't sustain yourself as a business, then we can't open our doors to future guests, right? So it's like this constant tension of wanting to do right by the individual and wanting to do right by all the future guests that could be coming too. It's so hard. Yeah. And it is part of your business reputation. So I, that's sort of a um, area that I'm going to learn about this winter. My off season's just about researching, learning, getting better at this. Um, and one of it is reputation management. So that's sort of maybe the, you know, that's the TED talk on it. But uh, I think it's like part of who we are that we will be consistent and that, you know, yeah, we're not picking favorites and it's going to garner us some you know, bad trip advisor and, you know, reviews, Google reviews and how we respond to the bad reviews, I think is more important than getting one. It's how we agree. Yeah. Because you have one opportunity to respond to it and everyone else is reading it. And Mm -hmm. so if you had a question about, will they keep my money if I cancel, there's your answer. Um, yeah, you don't got to worry about it. And I think that the other way that we're trying to lead in our industry is with a very wordy, cause that's me, but a very wordy, fulsome, uh, policy section. And there's a lot of information on our website that I have noticed other places do not want to put. And I think some of it's out of fear mm. and they'll handle their situation internally They'll take their, you know, problems and kind of, you know, have those interactions with customers privately. Whereas I would like to say to people, here's the rules, all of them, three or four pages. Um, if you read them all, you'll have a really good idea of how we operate. And yeah. do you want to come here? Do you want to enjoy it? Is this sort of you or not? And like when you're yeah. talking with uh, Pete about, you know, um, being heart centric, being, being honest, that's part of it is your integrity is what are you offering? And are you actually 
like transparent and accurate about that. And then what are you going to do when the problems happen? Because of course, you're always booking yep. in the happy times. And then, you know, a month before you want to come, you've got a, you know, a elective surgery that comes through and you can't make it. And I completely understand. But if it's in my policy, I'm going to stick to it. So I think the takeaway there for other Airbnb owners is if you're at the beginning stages, or even if you're not, to take that time, if you have a partner, to sit down and brainstorm what are some of the scariest things that could happen, or if you've been doing it a while, what are some of the common concerns we hear, and what is our response to that? Because consistency, to your point, consistency in your honesty and transparency is really going to impact your reputation. And if you are on the same page about what you're going to do, then replying to that bad review is very easy because you know exactly what you've agreed. This is what we do in this situation. It's not subjective. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, there's a lot of evolution and these businesses, uh, fishing resorts, campgrounds, and, you know, places like ours, we necessarily have to, um, anticipate problems, and then strategize around that. And then we have had some problems. Like I said, the fire season's a real thing. Um, the mm-hmm. pandemic was very impactful. Mm-hmm. And a lot of no it, one could have predicted that one. Right. Or if you could, good for you. I'd like your advice in helping me. Well, <laughs> I think what we've learned is that it will happen again. And, you know, it's uh, important to get out ahead of it and to say this is what your expectations of your customers are, because this is a business that people are booking sometimes up to a year ahead of time to get. Right. And so right. I don't know if you ever faced this down, but with us, like we also had to look at our point of sale and our booking system, like I said. And so we have payment processors. We actually run two point of sale right now and we have two payment processors. And when we went to Checkfront for our booking system and integrated it into the website and everything's happy day and we're going to have Stripe as our payment processor. Um, I don't I think that one of the things that we learned that was like interesting was that we are viewed a little bit as a risky business and our payment processor has us under a rolling uh, 120 day uh, revenue holdback because we uh, sell a service that takes months to actually fulfill. And in that time, right. things can happen. And so the payment processor wants us to have a contingency, which does actually affect our cash flow quite a bit. So, oh, yeah, that's four months. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. And so we also were trying to design our cash flow a little differently so that it would be sustainable across the whole year because you make a mortgage payment every that's month. Right. So that's right. Yeah. That's right. So it doesn't matter if you're full in December or not, you're paying, there are certain expenses that aren't going anywhere. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I said this directly, but we're seasonal. So we just, we only operate for five and a half months, but year round we're taking bookings. So, you know, um, managing the sort of what you know and what you don't know. There's this like, you know, the no, I think this comes from um, former vice president, but you know, there's the, the unknown and then there's the known knowns and then there's the known unknowns, the things that you know, you don't know. And then there's the worst corner of the quad, which is the unknown unknowns, the things that pop up the blind spot. Totally. And we didn't see that uh, reserve coming from our payment processor because we didn't know about it when we signed up. And it's a little too late when you've already moved over 300 bookings into your new system. 
And so limitations of software, limitations of platforms, um, all of the things that you kind of deal with and anybody running an Airbnb, a VRBO or whatnot has this is grappling with going to direct bookings and or staying yep. with your platform and just letting that run it for you. Um, and yep. then fees, hidden fees, all of the taxes. So yes, yeah. there's a lot, <laughs> but that's kind of why I like yeah. it. Keeps me busy. I love that framework uh, of the quad. I've never heard it described that way. I think all the time about what are our blind spots. And I tend to think about it more politically with anything else. And like, how do you discover your blind spots other than having conversations with people that you disagree with? And you might end up in that conversation, not agreeing with them, but they might have pointed out some areas that your experiences haven't allowed you to learn yet. So that's really interesting to think about it in the rental world. Yeah. Those- Sarah, this was so much more in the weeds than I thought it would be, but I love that. I feel like for anyone who's thinking about buying or thinking about the business side, I think so much of what we talked about is so helpful because a lot of folks who own one or two rentals don't think of it as a business yet. But in many ways it is. And so to implement things that a larger business might be thinking about can only make you stronger, even if you are a one Airbnb business, but you might grow into more or you might not. I still think a lot of the things we talked about are really helpful. It was great to meet you. It's great to meet you too. And I can't wait to come visit your place. Other folks need to go to the website. I don't think the video is up there yet, but I would be curious when you share it. If other people have the same like strong emotional reaction that I had when I watched it. I think that it's so true. Like Instagram, we all started with pictures, static, right? And then reels came along and blew the lid off of it. And I know. Yes. And so it is so cool to see anything that moves. And the strongest reaction I ever had on the one of the Instagram posts that I put up was my first reel, which was literally in the side by side going down the boat launch road. And it got hundreds of views compared to like any of my pictures would have got about 60, 60 or so views or likes or that kind of thing. I mean, we, we still have a really small following. So just the fact that it was like, uh, uh, just a very casual, you know, video taken, but it just, it captured the feeling. So that's what I've gone back to with our, with Ben and Jen for our production on the video is how do we capture the view and like, how do we get it? And I think the part of that video, um, teasing it still, cause it's not yet ready, but, uh, the video for me is like literally watching the people in it. And yes, the, the landscape is outstanding and you will get that when you come, but yeah, there is sort of a heart feeling of the soul of the place is really mm-hmm. how people are doing what they're doing and how you, how you see that in context. So sunshine, or yeah. you know, ripples of wind on the water, those kinds of things. It's yes. really about that. Well, that, and this isn't a, a quick video tip for anyone creating reels, but when we film, whenever we get on set or we're shooting in a new location, our rule is always you start wide. You need at least two or three good wide shots because when you walk into a space or a room as a human, the first thing you do is like look around, right? You need to like orient yourself in the surroundings. And that film opens with a couple really powerful drone shots, right? So the first thing it does is help me understand where I am. And then the next thing we do is we look a little bit more closely, like, oh, the couch is over here. The chairs are here. Okay. I understand how this room works. And then the last thing that we do is we go even tighter, like, oh, there's a bookshelf over there. I wonder what books are on the shelf. And so our job in creating video 
is to use wide, medium, and tight shots in the same to replicate that experience of walking into a space and feeling like you belong. And I loved in that video that it was not all drone shots, which is why I was surprised when I went to check out the video production company that they specialize in aerial video because it I would not have been able to tell that they didn't do all video because they did such a good job of setting that stage. And then you start to see some of the cabins and the landscape and like the actual resort. And then you see like individuals getting into a boat, right? And it's that same thing of like, I know where we are. I understand what's here. And now I understand how I will be experiencing this as a human. Yeah. And so that was really powerful. So anyway, for anyone still with us, this is probably our longest podcast to date. Um, That's an easy, quick video tip to implement if you're doing reels. You can do the same thing with your cabin. Do not shoot all medium photos or all medium videos. That is a big mistake. You have to integrate the wide ones first. Even in your Airbnb profile, wide photos should go first. They need to understand like where your property is and what it feels like. Okay. Sarah, thank you so, so much. It was great to meet you and we'll definitely be in touch. Fabulous. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you liked what you heard, feel free to leave us a five-star rating on Spotify or share some of your favorite parts over on Apple podcast. If you have feedback or suggestions for the future, you can also find me on Instagram at cozy rock cabin. Looking forward to next week.